Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Kasia Zaitz. In the previous episode, Justin Norden, partner at JSR Ventures, shared a VC analysis of the current generative AI landscape in healthcare. Healthcare has been burned so many times by overpromises in technology. We've seen the Watson AI failures. We've seen EMRs really holding a lot what physicians think a lot of healthcare back. We've seen overpromises in RPA. Time and time again, digital transformation has failed in healthcare. And so I think there's a big resistance and lack of trust for new technology companies saying it's going to be different. So that is really the key barrier in terms of implementing these new tools and getting them adopted. What's fascinating both as a physician and a technologist from my perspective is the technology's here. We finally have the tools that really are able to perform at a level that in certain cases is comparable to physicians and automate a lot of physicians or other clinical tasks or administrative tasks, and these are performing in a way that could really augment and shake things up. So now the key question is, how do companies navigate and build that trust with health systems and providers to actually see the benefits? We're continuing with the topic today. I spoke with Munjal Shah, CEO and founder of Hippocratic AI. Hippocratic AI is building a safety-focused large language model for the healthcare industry. The company raised 50 million US dollars this year. In this discussion, Munjal talked about what exactly does the company mean by positioning itself as a safety-based LLM, what convinced investors, how are they building the team, and why there's a lot of inefficiencies to be solved before we use generative AI for diagnosis. Just before we begin, I'd like to quickly introduce you to a drink based on matcha green tea I recently came across. Magic Mind, which is also a sponsor of the show, created a new type of an energy drink and packed it into convenient small shots you can take wherever you go. I personally drink coffee quite regularly, and exactly because it's a habit, it's not actually an effective energy drink for me. Green tea works differently, and I've been a fan of matcha for years. But if you want to prepare matcha properly, you need a special bamboo whisk and a bowl to prepare it. This is really inconvenient if you want to drink matcha on the road or in the office. And that's exactly what's the advantage of Magic Mind. It's conveniently packed and you can take it anywhere. The drink is a combination of 12 active ingredients scientifically designed to improve energy, focus, decrease stress and improve mood. And served cold, it's really refreshing during the summer. So if you're interested in reducing your coffee intake but still feel alert, this might be a product for you. So get more info at magicmind.com slash digitalhealth and if you decide to test this, make sure to use the code DIGITALHEALTH20. For a very limited time, you can get 50% off if you decide to get a subscription or 20% off for a one-time purchase. I added the link and the code to the show notes. Now let's jump to today's discussion.
Munjal, hi, and thank you so much for joining me for the discussion on Faces of Digital Health. We are going to talk about large language models and what you are doing with your latest startup. You've actually been in the health tech space for over a decade. You re worked for a startup that was working in the insurance space. So maybe we can start there. How did you transition to the field of large language models, which are a big topic this year? Yes, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I'm a serial entrepreneur. This is actually my fourth company. And my third company was a machine learning computer vision company. And the day after we sold it to Google, I actually ended up with chest pains and ended up in the ER. It kind of began a journey where I had to take care of my health, lost 30, 40 pounds, but get very interested in healthcare. So then I spent the next 10 years building the company you mentioned around healthcare. And, and then I saw ChatGPT come out frankly. And I said, oh my God, AI finally works. <laughs> We've been promised AI for so long. And I did my graduate work in AI. I did my grad in AI. And I built that another company I mentioned. Still, it, it only worked in very narrow way. You applied it to this one task. Um, it could do it, but if you asked it to do any other task, it wouldn't. And so once I saw ChatGPT, I said, it's finally time to combine healthcare and, and AI and really do what we've all wanted to do for, for decades. So where do you see that the field is at the moment? So the field of large language models. So when ChatGPT came out, then soon Google also announced its own medicine-specific model, MedPalm. And now there's many companies that, you know, are either building their own large language models, are combining them. How would you assess the current state of the field Yeah, it's if you talk about large language models, there's two conversations there. There's large language models in general, and then there's large language models for healthcare. And so since you mentioned MedPalm from Google, and, and then they have a new one called MedPalm too, I really believe that there's a huge opportunity to build vertically focused large language models in healthcare. So if you think about MedPalm, they actually didn't train it at all on any healthcare content. And this isn't me saying that. Go read their paper. <laughs> it actually says... All we did is what's called instruction tuned for the USMLE. So they knew they were going to be judged on this one test. And so they trained to the test. In fact, they say they trained to the test. And so what nobody has done in this space is really built a language model for, from scratch designed just for healthcare. And I think that's the big opportunity available. We just believe that building one from scratch just for healthcare will make for a much better model. Mm -hmm. Before we maybe touch upon how do you actually build a large language model, you mentioned two words, and that is that basically MedPalm is a vertically built large language model and that they just fine-tuned it. Let's explain all the terms that we see in the discourse yeah. around this. So what's a horizontally, what's a vertically built model? What's a sure. large language model wrapper? How does it differ for just fine-tuning a large language model? Let's do a five-minute crash course on the understanding of the field. <laughs> We could try Yeah, it's, it's a lot to cover, but look, when you train these language models, they have parameters and the parameters are basically the weights that connect each node or each neuron in the neural network. Um, and the size of the model is really the number of those connections. And so when somebody says that it's a, you know, 7 billion parameter model, what they mean is there's 7 billion connections and there's 7 billion of these little mathematical weights that you adjust to train the model. Now, 
when you fine tune the model, traditionally, most fine tuning only adjusts the last layer of weight. So you're not training the whole model back to do this other task. You're just training the last layer of weight or maybe the last few layers of weight. And that's all you're doing when you're fine tuning. But, and when you're instruction tuning, think about that as you're teaching the model how to complete a task, how to stay on task, how to focus being on task. And it's actually very important. But to do that right, you want to actually be able to touch all the weights. And then there's another term called RLHF, reinforcement learning with human feedback. This is actually what they did to make chat GPT so good. They, most people believe they took GPT-3 and did RLHF with how many people, but, you know, large numbers of people to give the algorithm feedback. Yes, you spoke well. No, you didn't speak well. Um, and that requires you to also be able to modify all of the parameters. And so this is what most people realize and don't realize is if you want to just use somebody else's model and you don't have access to every parameter in it, you just can change a little bit of it, then you can only make very limited updates. And so a true language model for a given domain really requires you to be able to change all the parameters in the entire model. But today you can only do that if you build your own model. Mm -hmm. Like OpenAI doesn't give you access. In fact, for GPT-4, you can't fine tune it. I think for GPT-3.5, you can't fine tune it. You can only do it for, I think, GPT-3 or maybe even before that, GPT-2. But nobody wants to give you that access to be able to touch all their parameters. Um, and so you really have to build a model from scratch to do that. So we explained a few things. Did we explain the horizontally and vertically build models? Well, yeah, there's not. So think of the difference between a horizontal and a vertical model as a couple of things. One, are you just training it on general internet content, which there might be a little medical content in there, or do you go out and find, you know, specific healthcare content? And so, for example, there's something called the common crawl that you train your model on. And the common crawl is about a trillion tokens, they call it. A token is roughly a word, so a little less than a word, but it's roughly a word. And what'll happen is your model will learn all the concepts in all that training data. But what you really want to do is probably train it on a trillion tokens of healthcare content in addition to the general internet. And most, a true vertically trained model, a horizontal model just trains it on the open internet. A vertically trained model will train it on a specific domain's content, be that financial services or every single stock piece of information out there, or in this case, healthcare. And so you have to go find that trillion tokens of healthcare data, of which healthcare data is hard to find. Like it's not on the open internet because thank God, due to HIPAA and other things, we want it to be behind the firewall. And so you have to go and find ways to get that data, license that data and bring it forward where you don't really have that in a normal model. So horizontal trained models largely are trained only on open internet data versus vertically trained models are trained on specific data. In addition, there's other things you can do in how you do the instruction tuning, teaching it how to follow directions, and the RLHF teaching it specifically to speak in a healthcare favorable way. And so these are all multiple steps to basically building a better LLM for healthcare. Mm -hmm. And how is your large language model built? So we start at the very beginning. The first step is there's actually something called an embedding space. And think of that as just a high dimensional way to represent all the vocabulary that it sees when it starts training. 
it turns out that if you build a model and you only did it on the open internet, then it's only assigned like, I don't know, 5% to healthcare words because that's all they showed up in frequency. It literally just looks at the frequency of words. And it says, oh, I see albuterol only shows up 0.0001% of the time. So I'm going to give the drug name albuterol very little weight. But you don't want that in healthcare, right? You want it to give all the drug names a very heavy weight because they show up everywhere. And so to do that, you have to actually set it up at the very beginning and say, no, I want you to calculate your embedding space by looking at a trillion healthcare tokens and looking at a trillion normal tokens or common crawl tokens, not just the common crawl tokens. So it, and as a result, like 30%, 40% of the embedding space will be assigned to healthcare words. So you almost need to like set up your vocabulary for healthcare. That's step one. Step two is you have to train it on a trillion plus healthcare tokens in addition to the normal. Step three is you have to instruction tune it specifically for healthcare action. So it'll stay on track. It'll finish the task. The task would be do a patient intake, right? Find out why they're here today. What are their ailments? What's going on with them? And stay on track. Don't get too off course. And then the third is the RLHF. And so traditionally they did that with normal average consumers. But you want to use medical professionals to actually be giving feedback to your system. So you, if you're going to have it act like a nurse doing a patient intake, you want it to be trained by professional nurses uh, today who are doing that exact task and giving it feedback and saying, hey, you spoke well here, you didn't speak well here. And ideally, you want those nurses then at the end to certify and say, yep, this LLN is ready to go. And so we're doing all of those things. We're actually... The first ones to start at the very base layer and then go all the way across designing this just for healthcare. So how big was or is the data set that you are building the model on? And how did you actually get to that data? You mentioned earlier how difficult it is to do with publicly available information. So how are you approaching that data gathering? Yeah, we will have over a trillion healthcare specific tokens. What that's made up is a bit proprietary, so we're not sharing what that is. But we found it from public data sources, but mostly we licensed that data and we got it from key partners that, that we identified. And so that's a lot of it. Like, but for example, we're training our LM to understand not just medical knowledge, but also things like malpractice risk. So we're giving it every lawsuit in the country around malpractice because you actually do want to know that. You want your language model to understand that. We're training it on every, the detailed 200-page PDF on every single healthcare plan in the country. For all the Medicare Advantage ones, there's something called the PBP, and it's this large data set that shows every feature and every copay and every deductible and what benefits are included in every single healthcare plan in the country in the U.S. And we said, hey, you can't build a healthcare language model that doesn't understand what the policies cover. And so we're training in on that. So there's a lot of additional content that goes beyond just medications and ailments. If you really want a language model for healthcare, and that's why we chose that. We're building a healthcare language model. I'm not building a drug discovery language model that like Alpha Bold. I'm not building a diagnosis language model. I'm building a healthcare language model. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in which part of the work processes does your solution come into play? How do you imagine that the whole collaboration would look like between the worker and the language model? 
Yeah, so there's two approaches you can take with this. One is what we call doctor nurse in the loop, right? Where the language model does something, they review it, and then they put it out. And that's where all of the language models today are very good, what I call rough draft engines. They're not great at finishing it, meaning they'll get it 80%, but the human has to take it the last 20%. But that doesn't solve the big problem with healthcare. If you look at it today, we are about a million doctors in the U.S., and we're missing another 120, 150,000 that we need. On the nurse side, it's even worse. We have 3 million nurses and we're missing 600 to 900,000 nurses, so 20 to 30% that we need. And if you keep the person in the loop, you probably don't get there because you don't always get the efficiencies you need and you're limited by number of nurses. And so they got to review everything from the LLM, it doesn't work. And so we're looking at trying to find ways to do what we call super staffing. Like the big idea here is not this, oh, how do we get you 10% more efficiency in your nurses? The big idea here is, wait a minute, we probably only have a few hundred thousand chronic care nurses in the whole U.S. out of the 3 million total nurses. But we have 68 million people with two or more chronic diseases. Why don't we have 68 million nurses? And what would happen to healthcare outcomes if we did? Now, we can never do that in real life, right? 68 million people out of 350 million people would not want to be nurses. That's too many. We couldn't afford to do it. But with language models, I think this is the big idea. So I call it my super staffing idea, which is this isn't about how we get 10% more efficient. This is about how do we 10x the number of healthcare workers? How do we use that then to finally deliver better access to healthcare than ever? Everybody's been saying, I want better access to healthcare. I want better health equity. But everything they do is a zero-sum game. If you take from the, you move more nurses to this underrepresented group, great. But then you took them from somewhere because you only have 3 million nurses to start with. And many of many people quit during the pandemic because they got burnt out. And so we think the big idea is how do you make 68 million more nurses? And how do you do that everywhere? Even genetic counselors. You get a genetic test in the U.S. For a certain tests, they'll make you meet with the genetic counselor before you get the results. And there you are worried and there aren't enough genetic counselors and genetic counselors don't actually do diagnoses. They just tell you the result and interpret it for you. I'm like a language model could do that. Are you and sure? So, I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking like. You should see these, like there's a lot of knowledge you need to properly do it. And there's a lot of new studies and these things are pretty good at it, but not without us training it using genetic counselors. Mm -hmm. But if we launched a genetic counselor for doing this, it would be after a thousand genetic counselors rated our bot and said, it's ready to go. Rated our language model and said, you know what? I think it can go. So we just have a different certification process before we'll put it out there. Yeah. I have maybe two comments there. And one is that I, like at HIMSS in Chicago, I heard a debate around patient access to data and should patients see, for example, the lab results immediately when they're available or not, or should the doctor see them first? Because sometimes it can happen that because patients won't understand on, or won't be able to interpret the results that they might get scared unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. And that's why you basically need that consultation. Right. So that's why I thought your comment was interesting in terms of giving the results immediately when they're there, because it does create a certain level of liability, maybe, if you're not... But this, this is actually the beauty of the language model, right? Right now, you're forced between a choice of 
unsupervised delivery of the information or supervised delivery super delayed because the doctors are not available or the nurses are not available. But now you can do both. You can have it supervised and instant. Now, is it as good a supervision as a human? I don't know. We'll see. So far, there is data that says it's got better bedside manner. And that's one of the big things we're building into our language model. It's got more knowledge because it can literally have read every single PubMed paper on that study and on those genes and on that genetic test. We'll have to see whether it all comes together. But I think that there's a, there's a real opportunity here because it's instant. Mm-hmm. You have an infinite number of them. And it's supervised, meaning you can ask it. You can say, hey, what does this really mean? Should I worry about this? Because we've all done that, right? You look down a test and you're like, does this mean I have a fracture? Does this not mean I have a fracture? Like, I can't understand it. But if you could ask and they can explain it to you, then you get the benefit of instant and supervised at the same time. And I think that's the ideal. Yeah, yeah. I guess the only question that could come up here is how do you make sure that the users can actually trust the model, especially if they use something else before. Because for example, that's just the thing, for example, with ChatGPT, it's just so convincing that if you're not super skeptical, mm-hmm. you might get deceived very quickly. And I can give you an example. So I was doing some research and I was I asked ChatGPT, how many insurance companies does the Netherlands have? And it said five and it gave me names. And I said, doesn't it have 10? And it said, oh, yes, I'm sorry, there's 20. And it just gave out 20. And I'm like, oh, no, but I think there's five. And it said, oh, yeah, I'm really sorry. Yeah, there is five. So I'm like, okay, this is definitely not something you should use to make sure if the data is right or not. You're making my point for me, right? All the more reason you need it specifically trained for a domain. Mm. And that might still not be enough to your point. But I think that it's definitely not going to work unless you do that. Mm. And then... The other part is you need the medical professionals who do that job today to say it's ready to launch. That's why we named the company Hippocratic. I don't know how much more to say that we care about making sure it does no harm than naming it Hippocratic, making the tagline do no harm, and laying out all these steps on how we're going to design the product to be as safe as we can make it. But remember... Most of your danger comes from diagnoses. And so everybody, even in some of the conversations that I have with people, they keep bringing it back to diagnoses. They're always like, oh, but in diagnoses, it'll be unsafe. I'm like, yeah, that's why I said, let's not do diagnoses. And I don't know. But and again, they just keep doing that, like the same conversation over and over again. I don't know why they can't like focus on all the other applications in healthcare. Take billing and explanation of benefits. Nobody in the U.S. understands their healthcare bill. Like you get your bill and you're like, this is the most confusing thing I've ever seen. And it's a perfect thing for the language models to explain. And if you think about it, the risk is very low in that case. It could give you the wrong answer and still it's better. It's probably still better than the human. A lot of times when you ask people, is this covered? Is that covered? They go, oh yeah, it's covered. And then later on, it doesn't get covered. The amount of incorrect information, because they haven't read the 200-page PDF on every single plan and even known how to interpret it, even if they have read it. And the models can absorb a very large amount of information and can work through it and, and can do it in a way that sometimes much better than a human. And so I think that we'll see what happens, but there are many applications like that. Take a preoperative nurse. Do you know what most of those questions are? Takes up nurse time and doctor time. And it's mostly people going, Oh, can I, can I eat pizza two days after the operation? 
Am I supposed to shave my leg before my knee surgery or will you guys see it? And it's understandable, right? You're about to be cut open. You are nervous. You have lots of questions, but most of those questions don't really require a doctor of ours. And you can save the few that do for them and you could save huge amounts of staff time. So you're actually saying that we could replace basically the missing workforce, yeah, individuals. Yeah, and, and or you can also super staff them, meaning it's not just the ones we need today to get to the level we've decided is our staffing today, but it's also this idea about what's the ideal staffing that would have resulted in the best healthcare outcomes. Even if the mass never worked before, what would have been the ideal staffing? And if we got to that staffing, what would happen? Uh, staffing is definitely a huge and growing issue. I think it's one of the topics that personally I find most worrying because it's already getting increasingly more difficult to get to medical care because of the lack of clinicians and consequently larger waiting lines, yeah. etc. But it still feels that Nobody would ever dare to say that AI could replace people. It's not, a, in this case, it's not directly replacing because the existing people will still be there. It's just there will be AI where people could potentially also be. I think you have to think about where you can apply it rather than make it a broad general thing. Mm. When your test result is negative, meaning they found nothing, do you really need a human to call you up just to tell you they found nothing? Is that a good use of your scarce nurses? But you might still have a few questions. And so it, again, back to that supervised test result idea, there are places we need to do this because if we decide we're not going to have any augmentation, then we're back to just waiting months and months for people to get appointment. And that has its own danger. Cancers progress. And disease continues, and with lack of treatment, people get hurt. And so I think there's a very real need to expand our healthcare workforce. I think we just have to be smart. Everybody, again, there's no general answer. I don't think you can generally replace any nurse or any doctor. I think there's specific tasks within it that are safer to do with an LLM, and there are specific tasks that are not safe to do. And... We're the first company that came out and said, Google didn't even say this. Did they say, please don't use MedPromptu for diagnosis? No. In fact, they went further. They built a whole engine so you could upload radiology like images and process it, right? I'm like, oh, guys, let's stick to the kind of low risk activities that can augment our healthcare capacity. That's the right place to build LOMs around that's what we're doing in hyperbaric. In January, I think, or maybe you can tell us when you raised 50 million US dollars to go from stealth mode. What exactly do you think convinced investors to, to basically support you, given how there's an increasing number of companies that are using large language models today? And also, you are an advisor to many startups. So what do you think was the key thing to success in your case? Look, I think our team was really what did it. One of my co-founders is the chief operating officer of a $1.5 billion hospital. He was, and then he joined us. And before that, he was chief operating officer of another hospital. He's an MD from Johns Hopkins. Then we had a bunch of folks out of NVIDIA who had built large language models, including helped to build Megatron, which is their 500 billion parameter model. And 
And then we had a bunch of folks who had spent a lot of time in healthcare, specifically in Medicare, but also in healthcare call centers, which a lot of the things like chronic care nurses or healthcare call centers. And so we had the right team, right? The second was because we had been working in the industry for so many years, I think our investors largely believed that you had to have a language model built for healthcare, but together working with the healthcare industry. And that was our second approach. And third, you look, like everything else in life, the more you've done it, the better you get at it. And frankly, we built companies before. I've been an advisor to many, I've built multiple companies. And there's just an advantage to that. One thing that I'm thinking now is that if I try to put myself into the patient's shoes, how would the use of something that you're building look like? It depends on the use case, but um, we are also adding voice to our language model. So we're actually doing voice in, voice out. It's not just chat. And if you listen to the new voice synthesis, it's very good. In fact, it's almost too good. And, and then the voice recognition technology has also gotten extremely good. And actually, if you look at the voice recognition technology and you pass it to the LLM, when it misses words, the LLM actually fixes it. For seniors are about 20% of the population in the U.S., but they're like 60% of healthcare visits. Like they just go to the doctor a lot more, they get a lot more procedures, and they like to talk on the phone. And when you talk to somebody on the phone, you can connote emotion way better than you can. And you can sense emotion way better than you can. And like, I didn't mention this earlier, but our language model is actually going to have built into a tone detection so that we can actually tell the difference over the phone when we talk to you, whether you're saying my back hurts or you're saying my back hurts. Same exact words in the speech recognition, but very different tone. And you should respond quite differently. And so we are building features like that specific. But one of the big things is we plan to basically try to, we'll call you up and say, hey, I have your test result. It was negative, Mr. Shaw. And it's, oh, great. That's good to know. Do I need to get another test done? And you can ask some basic questions. No, that's the only test you needed. Blah, blah, blah. The doctor didn't indicate any other follow-up. You should be relieved. Oh, okay, great. Thank you. That saves that nurse from having that, spend that 10 minutes on that phone call. And, but I think you have to do a voice element of it to deliver it. And you have to tell the patient, you'll say, this is doctor's virtual assistant calling. You won't say it's the doctor. You won't say it's anything else. You'll just say it is actually a language model calling you. Mm -hmm. And what if a patient still wants to talk to a person? That's easy. You just say press one if you want to talk to the doctor. But there's, you're going to have to break out for many reasons. If you don't have the doctor in the loop for every single sentence, which you can't have, or the nurse in the loop, then you are, on, when the, if the patient says certain things, you are going to have to kick it out. Mm -hmm. They say, actually, I'm really in pain right now. I know my test was negative, but something's still going on. You probably need to get them over to the doctor. If we go back to the company and how it's going to evolve, I'm curious to hear how your staffing is going, given that there's been a lot of layoffs in the tech world in the last year. So one would imagine that it's fairly easy to get the right people. Mm. How are you approaching that? And how long do you think that you will be able to go on with the company before the next fundraising round? Mid-May, we announced the companies. We've had 5,000 engineering resumes, literally 5,000. And not just normal engineers, like NLP, machine learning, engineering. 
apply. And we even said on our website, we're, we don't allow any remote work. We're a hundred percent in the office. And, and we still got 5,000. And so I think to your point, there is just a huge demand for, because of all the layoffs, there's actually a, a much greater supply, much easier to build your startup. We had a target to hire a certain number of people. I think you're correct. We were, because of all of the layoffs, but I would say actually most of the people we hire, 85% had a job. They were maybe 90% had a job. They were not laid off. I think that's the second part. A lot of people want to get into LOMs. Mm-hmm. Even if they have a job, they want to start working on this technology. They realize it's transformative. They realize it's important for their career to understand this technology and to be working on it. And so we've been able to garner a lot of those. We even had a thousand doctors apply. Doctors who had AI experience and said, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I want to come and help guide the development of your product. And we hired a few of them. We hired a few nurses on staff full time. One who had spent 17 years as a chronic care nurse. Another one who was a nurse at UCSS, which is a very prestigious healthcare organization here in, in the Bay Area. How long it lasts is actually a little hard to guess because in building language models, you spend a lot of your money training. <laughs> like you have to buy these GPUs and the access and that's where your money goes. And it kind of depends how big a model you have to train. And it a little bit depends on how many times you do the training. Sometimes you do it and you get it. And it works. Sometimes you're like, oh, we had a mistake. This screwed up and that didn't work. And you got to do it again. And it's millions and millions of dollars every time you do it. So what's your biggest challenge? Honestly, just getting all the steps working to build this next generation of our model. You have to do so much. You have to do all the engineering right. You have to get all the right healthcare tokens and get all the partnerships to do that. You have to like get all of this content that you then use to instruction tune. Like you actually have to get scripts where nurses and patients are talking and you have to have people write those scripts to train the language model, write those conversations by hand. And you have to do that at large scale and then you have to train the whole thing and then you have to test the whole thing and then you got to make it safe. And there's just a lot of work. And if you're really committed to making it safe, then... You have a lot of very careful steps you have to do before you can release the product. And so we're just trying to work as fast as we can on each of those and get the right team to do each of those. So how many people are you going to have at this point? We're not sharing that because it's also strategic, but it doesn't take that many people to build a language model. It takes a lot of contractors, like we'll have a thousand nurses as contractors evaluating the system, but the actual core employee base of the company doesn't. These language models are not. They don't need to be large companies. OpenAI, I had heard until two, three years ago, was only like 30 people, 40 people. Like it, it's not, I think, Adapt and some of these companies are not that big either. Like you look at them and they're all 30 to 60 people. And if you had a message for either clinicians or the patients when it comes to large language models, what would it be? Would it be a recommendation? Would you try to take away some fear? What do you think is the key thing that different people in different roles should know? Number one, stay away from diagnoses. I'll say that again and again. And when you find yourself slipping back, put yourself back. The second is think about super staffing. 
don't just think about how do I make this process 10% more efficient. Think about what are the things we never did in healthcare that we would do. And, and I think the third would be really look at parts of people's jobs and say, hey, this part can be, is safe to give to a large language model, even if the whole job isn't, or even if this other part isn't. And so don't throw the baby out with the bathwater to kind of use that analogy. There are always tasks that honestly, the language model will be safe enough to use for and maybe focus on those because we need to create capacity everywhere in healthcare, right? It's just an important thing. And when we don't have capacity, there is, it is hurting patients. You just don't see it because they're not coming in because they're not getting an appointment. <laughs> and sometimes when people are in pain, they don't actually, they call up and try to get one. And when they don't get one, they don't take one two months out. They just like ask. My, my mom is 80, 81, 82 years old. And I go over there sometimes and she's having so much pain. I'm like, we need to take you to the doctor now. And I'm like, did you call them? Did you try to make an appointment? And she's like, I did. The appointment's so far out. And, but, and then I had to call up and I had to like really be aggressive. And I got her the appointment and she got relief about, took another week for the issue to resolve. But I realized, oh my God, you need a patient advocate like that. You need somebody to go in there. So I, I think just we have to create more capacity so that folks like this don't just suffer. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting example because a large language model might give you information, but it won't be able to do stuff instead of you. Like from the patient side, I feel that healthcare is the only industry in where you are getting a service, but it's the only industry where once you enter healthcare, the work for the patient hardly begins because there's just so much that patients need to do in terms of either getting a second opinion, either going through the pre-authorization in the US, fighting with the insurance company about the claims, fighting about the drugs that they can receive or can't receive. So, yeah. Not there, but I'll give you another example. Most health systems have one to two people, usually two people for every single department, specialty department. And like a, a hospital like Stanford here near where I live will have a hundred departments. So they'll have 200 people. Do you know what those 200 people largely do? They check that you have all the, that you when you refer to a specialist, they check, are you referred to the right specialist? Because by the way, a lot of times it gets completely wrong. <laughs> like you're like, my neck hurts and you go to a specialist for something completely unrelated because the referral was incorrect in some way. Second, before you see the specialist, they're like, hey, we would love for you to have had this x-ray done or this MRI done or this other thing done. Otherwise, it's not efficient for the specialist. And specialist time is at a huge, it's a huge scarce resource in the country. And that's all they do is call you up and make sure the prerequisites are done and order those tests for you if they haven't been done. And they're pretty run-of-the-mill things for each specialty, so they're different for each one. And the, I've had two hospital systems come to me and just say, hey, can you automate some of these referral management nurses, I guess is what they call them, um, because they're, that's another opportunity. And so I think, again, if you do that, and then what happens today is 30%, I think is what they were telling me, of the appointments that actually happen, the specialist can't do anything. Oh, wrong appointment. Oh, you didn't have that test done. It's like literally a wasted appointment. And 
So then that, that hour is gone. And that is a huge opportunity to increase healthcare capacity if we can just do things like that. And you know, we'll see. There's little pieces like that. We just have to go through them one by one, identify them, figure out if they're safe, build a model that's instruction tuned and do that step well. Verify it with the right healthcare professionals doing that task today and try to make an impact. I, this is my goal is let's deliver better healthcare. And ever since I had my first health crisis, I've just been on a mission to try to do that. And by the way, it's hard. <laughs> I was at Bill, change the world. I'm like, yeah, but the world really doesn't want to change. <laughs> You've got to, you know, I'm like, maybe we'll make a dent in the world. <laughs> but I think that it's still a worthwhile mission. It's, that reminds like that. me of that graph that, that is it's the meme that when somebody starts working in healthcare as a startup, it's let's save the world. And then it's, okay, this is a little bit harder than we thought. This <laughs> is never going to work. And then it's, okay, let's just try to make things 5% better. <laughs> I think LLM is the first time where maybe we can do better than 5%. <laughs> maybe it's 10% better. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's more, but look, the whole world is both excited and scared of large language models because we've all never played with something that worked this good. Like we all have to admit that like it has its flaws and hopefully we're fixing them by making a vertical version. But I think we've all stepped back and we're like, Oh my God, like this is pretty darn good. Is it perfect? No, it will do this now, but oh my God, we created something with the level of intelligence that we never thought we could create. You see those chatbots on those e-commerce sites when you're trying to buy, like everything you type in, it's like, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. You're like, okay, so I give up. But ChatGPT understood a lot of things. And I think that's when we all were like, oh wow, there's something new happening here. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show, or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned.